like to invite you to open your Bibles to the book of 1 Thessalonians in uh, the New Testament. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Thessalonians chapter 1, I'm going to begin reading at verse 2. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of our God and Father, knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Decaia who believe. For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out, so that we do not need to say anything. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you, and how you turned to God from idols, to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. Father, we bow our heads before you even as we open the scriptures with the prayer that you might open your word to us. It's truth by the power of your spirit that this word might be planted in good soil, that it would bring forth abundant fruit for your glory. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This past week, NBC commentator and former NFL coach Tony Dungy got into some criticism because he had commended Super Bowl Bowl MVP Nick Foles on his faith, and Dungy had credited his faith as a significant factor in Foles' confidence and in his performance. And so, as you might imagine, it sort of lit up social media and sports writers. One sports writer devoted an entire article titled, Is Tony Dungy Analyzing or Evangelizing When It Comes to... Uh, to, to Nick Foles. And, and a couple things, you know, this, this writer says, you know, he speaks of Dungey. He has a long history uh, you know, of evangelizing, so we've got to weigh that. And, and he says, you know, Dungey has been a very public and proud Christian. He's pushed a narrative favorable to Christianity that may or may not be true. Bottom line down here, this, this author says, okay, Dungey, expressing his beliefs on his personal time and platform is one thing. But when his beliefs seep into his analyst role, either unintentionally or otherwise, they should be checked both by NBC and the public. Um, In other words, urging both uh, the network and the public that when Dungy does this, you should take him to task for it. 
which many did. Now, the point of this is not whether God cares about who won the Super Bowl. That's not the point, okay? Um, though it can be said that, that a Christian who has a skill to throw a football should throw the football for the glory of God. Win or lose, do all for the glory of God. But that's, that's, not, the, that's not the point here. The significant issue that, that this article illustrates is the emerging cultural phenomenon of what might be called Christian shaming. Shame on you, Tony Dungy, for bringing your personal beliefs into the public arena. Shame on you. Has anyone ever tried to, to shame you for what you believe? Ever felt like maybe they're trying to, to shame you into silence? You know, as, as pressure on Christian belief ratchets up, the temptation increases upon us to abandon long-held and biblically solid beliefs, even expressing shame over those beliefs. You could cite many examples, the most recent of which might be the very popular author and Christian author and speaker, Jen Hatmaker, who uh, has just sort of done this, ashamed of, of, of what had been believed and abandoning that. That is not how the church will successfully face the darkness. That is the church being overcome by it. And as we've come to this book of 1 Thessalonians, we are, we, we are f- focusing on the theme here of, of a church in the darkest hour, facing the darkness. We read about it in, in the Gospel of Mark this morning, that dark hour. You see, the church of the Thessalonians is an example to us uh, of a church facing darkness and thriving in the face of it. They were facing affliction. In fact, in, in the scriptures that we read here in, in, in verse 6, Paul writing them talks about, about them having received the word with, with much affliction. Uh, there had been distressing circumstances, tribulations, hardship that had come upon them. In fact, when Paul and his team had been in town in Thessalonica, the team had been forced to leave town. One of the members of the church named Jason was dragged into court. He was forced to post bond, if you will, sort of as a guarantee of not stirring up any more trouble in the city. Over in chapter 2 and verse 14, uh, Paul talks about, you know, for you also suffered the same things, referring to, to them having gone through suffering. Over in chapter 3, verse, uh, verse 3, he talks about, he, he encouraged them to not be shaken by these afflictions. For you've been appointed to this. This is a church that was facing darkness. This was a young church. Very young church. And the question in Paul's mind and heart, what had happened to the church after he left so quickly? How were they doing? Had, had persecution uh, caused them to, to abandon the faith? Had persecution caused them to, 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 to shrink? Was, was, was the persecution and the affliction causing them to, to really struggle? And what we find out is, in fact, that the opposite is what had happened. If you go down to, in chapter 1 to verses 7 and 8, just this, this amazing word 
that Paul writes, he says, listen, here's, here's what's happened. You became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out. We don't need to say anything. Your testimony says it all. It had expanded. It had continued to thrive. This, this church that was less than a year old, but it was already a church that was impacting the entire region of Macedonia, all the way down to Achaia, and he says, every place, every place, this, this word is, is sounding forth. Imagine, if you will, that word sounding forth, the sound of, a, uh, of someone taking that law, one of those large gongs and just coming up and banging it. And, and the reverberation and the sound that echoes and echoes and echoes and echoes. That's the picture that Paul uses here. If you will, the life of this church, the, the collective life and testimony of this church was like a gong that had been sounded and the, and the sound was rippling throughout the whole region and throughout the whole country. That's an amazing, amazing testimony. It raises the question, well, how did this young church filled with young believers have such a big impact in such a short amount of time. We're talking less than a year, some, maybe, maybe perhaps seven months since that church had started. Well, it could be offered, and I think rightfully so, that maybe it had something to do with the strategic location of this church. Thessalonica was, was the capital city of the province of, of, of Macedonia there. It was a large city. It was, if you will, it was the leading metropolis of that entire region. So it would be fair to compare it to to some of the major cities of the United States of America. It had a strategic location on on the crossroads of some trade routes. Uh, The the road coming from the eastern provinces of the Roman Empire, heading west towards Rome, went through Thessalonica. There was a north-south trade route that, that came through, through Thessalonica and then it would go on down the coast into Athens and Corinth and, and also that road went on, went on to the north. And there was Thessalonica at this strategic point on the trade routes. It was a natural seaport and so ships were constantly coming in and, and going out. And so this city was a, was a center of commerce and trade and travel. And so this church of the Thessalonians was in a place where they had opportunity to meet people all the time from all over the empire who were coming through. And so its geographical location was key in the ancient world. And as people would come in and, 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 and run into to people from this church or, or the, the life and testimony of this church, they would continue on their way. And with them, apparently, they were taking a word of testimony about these people, about this church. And it was spreading throughout the empire. So geographic location was key, but there's more to it. And really in the text that we read, Paul doesn't really so much emphasize the importance of their geographic location as he, as he does something else. And that is the people who made up this church. Yeah, their location was important, but that, that, wasn't, that wasn't the most important thing. The most important thing was the people who made up this church. How did this young church have such a big impact in such a short amount of time? Well, something happened in the lives of these people. 
And, and what happened in the lives of these people resulted in a swift and powerful impact on their city, on their region, on their country. Something happened to them. Something happened in their lives. This was, a, this was an interesting church. Last week we went to Acts chapter 17, which talks about the, the beginnings of this church. This was a church that was made up of, of Jews. It was made up of, of what were called devout Greeks. That is, Greeks who had, who had uh, if you will, come into, into the belief of the God of, of the Old Testament, the God of the Jews, and, and they were devout Greeks. We're also told in, in Acts chapter 17 that there were prominent women from the city of Thessalonica that came to faith in Christ. So these are no doubt some women of some position and standing in this large city who came to faith in Christ. And, and we know from what Paul writes here in 1 Thessalonians 1 that there were a bunch of, of idol-worshiping idol Gentiles who came to faith in Christ. That's quite a, that's quite a mix. Uh, humanly speaking, it probably was a pretty toxic mix. And yet this 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 very diverse and, and different groups of people that came together to whom something happened, that they became a church that impacted their city, impacted their region, impacted their country in very little time. Amazing. The word that we could use to describe what happened to these people in this church was, was the word converted. And we don't use the word a whole lot today because it's, uh, it's actually not viewed, viewed favorably, converted. And, and I would draw the word out of, out of chapter, uh, uh, verse, uh, verse 9 here, when he talks about how, how they had turned to God from idols. They had turned to God. The, the, the idea there, these people had been converted. They'd been converted. They'd been changed. This congregation was a congregation that came from the Jews and the devout Greeks and prominent women and, and idol-worshiping Gentiles. They had been changed. And this change is, is, is what had brought them together so that, so that they, they actually had this, this reputation, as we'll see. Paul says in verse 9, Paul says, listen, this is what other people are saying about you. I mean, Timothy had brought his report to Paul. What you read in verses 9 and 10 isn't what Timothy was saying. This is what Paul was hearing from those who had, who had come across this church, who had come across believers in that church, that this is what they're saying. They had, a, they had a reputation that had gone before them. And thus, the amazing testimony there in verses 7 and 8, that, that you become examples to, to, to believers all throughout. And, and, and the word of, of your testimony, it, it's, it's echoing. It's, it's echoing in, in ever wider circles. The sense of what Paul writes to them here does not lead us to conclude that this was the result of a strategic missionary endeavor on their part. That, you know, that they all sort of got together and said, okay, um, who are we going to send out, you know, to begin to take the gospel message? Who are we going to send you know, uh, you know, down to Berea? Who are we going to send on down to Athens? Who are we going to send to Corinth? Who are we going to send to all the, these villages? That, that's not the sense of, of what's happening here. It, it's not the result of a strategic missionary endeavor. Rather, the sense of what Paul writes as he commends them is that these believers, this church, they, they were living the mission where they were there in that city. And as they lived the mission, they were impacting people throughout that city. 
They were impacting travelers and business people who came through that city, who were coming into contact with this church. And, and, and I, I doubt very highly that what was happening is they were all coming into their, into their main worship service on Sunday. And I, I doubt very highly that what was attracting people into this Thessalonian church was a big high-powered preacher that just tra- attracted crowds from all, all over the place. That's not what Paul says. Uh, they, they, weren't, they, they weren't being impacted, if you will, by their b- Bible studies, but, but rather it's, it's, it seems that, that this church was, as they were spread throughout, uh, throughout the, the city, as they were working in their places of business, as they were working at the boat docks, as they were selling their wares and, and, and taking care of business transactions, as they were carrying out, out their trades, as they were working for the government, as they were mingling in their social circles, they were living out what it meant to have been a changed person by the power of the gospel. Changed by the gospel that was first seen in their conduct and it was opening opportunities for them to talk about what had happened through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. This was a church that was living what they professed. This was a church that was converted and it converted everything about them. So it converted the way they looked at their lives and and, and their task and their mission. So if we can make a distinction, I would submit to you that that what was going on wasn't missionary activity by this church, but this is what you could call, using a very popular term now, a missional church. And what do we mean by a missional church? We mean a church made up of people who understand that their lives are all about the mission of Jesus Christ. That if you will, the mission isn't just carried out when we sit down and formalize a missions trip. Missions trips are good. Missions trips are great opportunities to take the gospel to the ends of of the world. And, And we still need missions. And we still need missionaries. This is a church of people converted by the grace of God who came to understand, if you will, impacted by this, the, the need for others to hear this message, the need for others to come to know this Savior. And thus, wherever they went... Now, you know, when they, when they went out of their worship service, when they left their Bible study, when they went to their places of business, and whatever it was, as they rubbed shoulders with people traveling through that city all the time, this was a people always on mission. Always on mission. You know, whether it was just that, that lunch they had with that, with that traveler that, or the, this, this uh, business deal they were working out over here, whatever it was, working with the other guys at the docks, Whatever it was, they understand they were, they were always on mission. The mission of making Jesus Christ known. And so people are coming through that city, and, and they're coming in and they're going out. They're coming in and they're going out. And when they come in, they, they, they don't know these people. They don't know this church. When they come in, they don't know this Savior. But when they leave, they do. They know something about this church and, and something about the testimony of that church. And something about the grace of God and the power of the Spirit of God with them. And so when they leave, they're, they're taking that message all over the place. All over the place. You see, what brought verses 7 and 8 about, honestly, was not cutting-edge technology. What brought verses 7 and 8 about was not some entrepreneurial ideas. What brought verses 7 and 8 about was the lasting impact of their conversion and the power of God within them. And so as Paul opens this letter and greets them, he expresses his thankfulness to them. And as he expresses his thankfulness, he he, he affirms 
confidence in what God is doing in their lives and what God has done in the life of this young church. Based on the report that came back from Timothy, based on the reports that are coming to him as as people happen his way. Paul was down in Corinth when he was writing this letter. So apparently there were people coming through Corinth who would run into members of the church of the Thessalonians. And Paul says, let me tell you what they're telling me. This is amazing. (laughs) Stay at it. Stay at it. So as we look in these opening verses and think of this, this matter of being a converted church, let's just quickly highlight what I would call some three evidences of a converted church. Okay, the, the first evidence of a converted church is the, is the reality of the activity of God. That God work. You realize churches can just be these, these human institutions of, of doing good and lifting each other up and encouraging each other or religion, and God can be absent from all of that. A converted church can be seen by the fact of the activity of God. Well, what's the activity of God we see uh, in these verses? Down in verse 4, uh, as, as Paul he, he says, listen, I'm giving thanks, and, and, and he gives thanks by mentioning them in prayer and by remembering their, their work. Verse 4, and knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. The activity of God here, the, the electing grace of God in eternity past. You see, that, that phrase tells us that God has a plan. God had a plan for this church in Thessalonica. God has a plan for Northfield Baptist Church. This isn't all just like random accidental stuff happening. It's the result of God's work and, 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 God's, and, and God's mind and God's plan. And the scriptures tell us you can go way back to eternity past, which blows our minds. And God was already at work. The electing grace of God, which takes us back to verse 1 where Paul talks about, he calls this church, the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The church is God's people. The church is God's people by God's choosing and by God's doing. If you are a Christian this morning, a true follower of Jesus Christ, it is because of the work of the gracious work of God in your life. If you're a person who has not yet come to know that forgiveness through Christ, if you've not come yet in to, to, to embrace the life that, that is available through Christ, let me tell you, the grace of God is offering that to you. Offering that to you. The scripture says of, of, of the believer, the one who's been converted, that you were chosen from eternity past, not, not because of anything in you, Not because God saw promise in you. He's looking down through eternity. He says, you know, he's going to be a pretty good guy. I think I want him on my team. And so therefore, I'll choose you. He doesn't doesn't look down through eternity and see who's going to choose him and then choose them. Because if that was true, then his choosing would be based on you. It would be based on, oh, he looks down. Okay, Mark's going to become humble at some point. And, and Mark's going to become smart enough to get this. All right, he's going to be mine. His choosing, if that were true, would be based on something that I've done. His choosing somehow would be based somehow to some degree on my worthiness. But that's not how it works. It's grace. 
Grace, okay? Grace means that there's nothing in me, there's nothing in you that commends us to God. Some of the problem that we have when we think of that idea of choosing is we think that God chooses the way we do. Perhaps you can remember back to the infamous elementary school playground. It's recess time, and we're going to pick teams, all right? And so who knows how the captains got picked, but you know how the routine goes. The two captains are selected, and they begin to pick, and on what basis do they pick? They're looking for the best athlete or the best friend, because if they don't pick the best friend, you know, they'll probably get in trouble. They're looking for the best. They're, they're looking, in the, and they're saying, who, who here can, can, can make my team the best that it could possibly be? And I'm going to try to get every single one of them on my team. And we can have this false concept that somehow in eternity past, God was looking down at this mass of humanity and says, in all this mass of humanity, man, who would be the, who would be the, the best ones to put on my team? I mean, who, who, who among this is going to grow up to be the smartest people, you know, the best thinkers? You know, who, who's going to have the, the best kind of skills, leadership skills and, and entrepreneurial ideas? Who's, who of this group is going to have the, the best energy to really pour themselves into it? Because, because that's who I'm going to put on my team. That's not how God does it at all. At all. In fact, in fact, elsewhere, Paul writes and says, you know, if, if you want to use that analogy, God ended up choosing the people you would least likely think would be able to do anything for him. Put them on his team and made them everything they needed to be to do his mission. That's how God works. We're chosen by his grace according to his love and to the praise of his glory. Not because we're smarter. Not because we're better. Not because we're more worthy. Just because God's gracious. You see, we, we don't will our conversion. It's the divine work of God from eternity past to eternity future. Oh yeah, there comes the day we sang about it. <laughs> his eye diffused at ray. The dungeon filled with light. My chains fell off. And I was free because I received what he was offering. So we see the activity of God in his electing grace, but we also see the activity of God in what I would call his effective grace. Working through the gospel, verse 5, he says, listen, our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance. Do you know what kind of men we were among you? The gospel came, Paul says, the gospel came. Yes, it came in word, but it didn't only come in word. In other words, what happened in this church, you know, it, it, was, it was the outflow of some things that, that, were, that were said, but it wasn't just in the words they said. It wasn't just in the fact that Paul had stood there and had taught them the word of God and taught them the gospel. He says it came in power. Now, we're not told in Acts or in 1 Thessalonians whether, whether Paul actually performed miracles. He may have. He may have. But he came with power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance. So, so as Paul and his team came, they came in the power of God. They came in the power of the Holy Spirit. And they came with these truths gripping their hearts with a bold passion. See, the activity of the Holy Spirit brought the power in the conviction of the Holy Spirit. When, when the Spirit of God is convicting, that is a manifestation of the supernatural. 
A person will not be saved apart from conviction of sin because they'll never sense their need. How is it we come to realize the need? How is it there is this gripping sense of our, of our guilt before a holy God? It is the work of the Holy Spirit powerfully bringing conviction of sin to help us realize our need. There have been occasions that the Lord has given me to present the gospel, and in presenting the gospel when everything is said and done, I had no sense that the person to whom I talked had any sense of conviction of sin. For whatever reason, the Spirit of God was not working in them to convict. Not only that, as we see this power in the Holy Spirit, if you will, I think we see it on display in the fact that Paul says, we came in much assurance This much assurance or this boldness, it's rooted in conviction. That is one of the the supernatural signs of the Holy Spirit's work. You can go to Ephesians chapter, excuse me, Acts chapter 4, and you can read about it. It's mentioned at least three times there how the Holy Spirit, if you will, gave, gave them such boldness and power, boldness to declare the gospel, boldness and courage to suffer any cost. Where does that come from? It comes from the Spirit of God. And this team came with that kind of power. This was the effective grace. And it was, through, it was through these messengers, it was through Paul and Silas and Timothy who came in God's power with God's spirit, if you will, convicted and gripped and emboldened by the spirit of God. It was through that that, that the effective grace of God, the call to salvation went out. And they couldn't resist. They believed. See, this is how God's choosing became effective. This was how God called them to salvation. Because, you see, if God is not active, if his spirit is not convicting and drawing, then the gospel will be ineffective. It takes the power of God through the spirit of God. The gospel is God's power into salvation. But the power isn't simply in saying the words, but in the powerful working of the Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit is quenched in the life of a believer, there's going to be no power. If the Holy Spirit is quenched in the life of a church, there will be no power. And if there is no power from above, there will be no change below. The activity of God. Second, we see the activity of church leaders. I'm just going to highlight this quickly because this is going to come up again. We see in this converted church, the activity of church leaders. Verse 2, we see that that they're praying. Paul and Silas and his team, they, they are praying. They prayed regularly for the church, thanking God for them. He says, always. Uh, that, that doesn't mean that, that Paul was perpetually in prayer for them. It means that he was frequently praying. It means he was strenuously praying. It means he devoted time to prayer. But it's sort of like... You know, I'm a parent and I have children. I am not thinking of each child 24 hours a day, but I'll tell you what, thoughts of my child are never far from me, ever. There's a sense in which who knows when or how many times throughout a day I'll think of my children and pray. That's how Paul, this church, they're like his children. The churches were like his children, never far from his mind. And regularly praying, strenuously praying. This team devoted themselves to pray for this church. 
You see, prayer is is powerful in that it is directed to a living, powerful God who hears and who responds. This church that has such a powerful testimony, such a powerful impact in such a short amount of time was a church that was being prayed for. Prayed for by, initially, Paul and Silas and Timothy. Prayed for by the leaders of that church. And why would leaders of a church pray for the church and pray for the people of the church? Because we believe that there is a God in heaven who is working, who is powerful. There is a God in heaven who wants us to carry out his mission, who wants to work through us. And we realize that it will only happen if God is at work. And so praying, God, keep doing, keep doing the work in our lives. Keep doing the work in the life of each person. They prayed for the church. They encouraged the church. Down in verse 3 when Paul's talking about him remembering these things. He, he didn't just remember these things to the Lord, but right here in these opening verses, he is remembering these things to the people. He's encouraging them. And part of the reason he mentions these things in, in verse 3 is he, is, he is he is motivating them to continue, encouraging them to continue in these things. And we also notice the activity of these church leaders, that they were an example for the church. They were an example for the church. The end of verse 5, he says, he says, you know what kind of men we were among you for our sake, and you became followers of us and of the Lord. They were examples. They were examples. They brought the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit with conviction and boldness. They came, as, they came as a team. They came as individuals who themselves had been captivated by the very message. They were spirit-empowered. He says, you became followers of us as of the Lord. You began to imitate us and follow us. They provided an example in praying and encouraging. They provided an example in what they taught as they presented the gospel. They provided an example in how to do it, in the power of the Spirit with bold conviction They provided an example in facing the afflictions that came with following Christ. They had provided an example. They had provided a pattern. That's what these leaders did for this church. You know, the essence of discipleship is imitation. Is imitation. This is why true discipleship doesn't happen in mass or at a distance. Just because you teach a lesson, just because I preach a sermon, doesn't necessarily mean we're making disciples. A converted church has leaders who imitate Christ. And they don't just tell the church the way, they show the way. They provide a pattern to be imitated. That's the activity of leaders in a converted church. Finally, we can notice the activity of the church members. The activity of the church members. Notice verse 6. He says, and you became followers of of us and of the Lord. So, So they first became followers. They received the word of God in much affliction with joy of the Spirit. They, they weren't, and, and this was Paul's concern out of, of Christ's parable, they weren't like the seed that had been cast. It fell on stony ground, and because it was warm, it sprung up. But when the heat and the, and, and the oppression came, it withered and died. Paul said, that's like, that's like someone who hears the gospel. They respond enthusiastically, but affliction comes, persecution comes, and they wither away and die. That was Paul's concern with the church. That's not what happened. 
That's not what happened. Knowing what it would cost them, knowing it would bring affliction, they believed and they became followers of Jesus. And in spite of the affliction, in spite of the tribulation, the persecution that came their way, they rejoiced. They had the joy of the Spirit of God within them. To be converted is to believe the gospel and to to follow Jesus and also to follow those who follow Jesus. That's what happened. So they first became followers. Then, Paul makes it clear, then they too became examples. They became examples. And, and this is a collective example. He's not just saying, hey, there, there were some people in your, in your church there that really set a great, great, a great example. He is saying to this church, no, church, you became a pattern for others. Your life together became a pattern for others. And that testimony is what was reverberating throughout the region. Their example preceded and then prepared the way for the arrival of the Word of God. The testimony of their faith was going forth in deeds and words. And Paul talks about some of the ways in which it went forth. He said, he said you have joy in the Holy Spirit in your suffering. They weren't cursing the darkness. They were rejoicing in the Lord. Verses 9 and 10, you turn to God from idols. And, and here is a great testimony of, of their salvation in the gospel. They turn to God from idols to serve the living and the true God, and to wait for his son whom he raised from the dead, Jesus Christ, died and rose again, who is going to come again, and when he comes, he is going to deliver us from the wrath to come. That's the gospel. God is going to judge this world at some point. Every single person is going to stand before him, and there is deliverance through Jesus Christ who died, who rose again. Who changes lives. That was their testimony. They had believed. Not only that, he said earlier in, in, in these verses, back up in verse 3, he talked about their deeds, where he talks about their, their, their work of faith, their labor of love, their patience of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. That was the testimony of this converted church, because a converted church engages in works of faith. That is, they, they involve themselves in those things that demonstrate their trust in God. They were a church that labored at love. That's interesting. That's a word that, that says this is, this is something that's not easy to do. They had to work hard at this. Remember that, that it's a church of Jew and Gentile and devout Greek and prominent women and, 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 and pagan idolaters. That's a toxic mix. You know what? They had to work to love each other. And the scripture acknowledges that. Churches, churches do all kinds of crazy things because people won't work to love each other because you know what? Sometimes it's hard to do that. It's not always easy to love one another as we ought. Oh, there's some people that are easy to love, and so we go embrace them. There are some people who are, who are hard to love, and so we run away from them. They labored at their list. This is the testimony of this church. It's not always easy to love in the church. It's not always easy to love in a marriage. It's not always easy to love in the workplace. But they labored at it. And look at the impact. Do we labor at that? So much more I could say there. They did not lose hope. See, a converted church is a church like this. This is a church that says to the darkness, bring it on. On. The Olympics opened this past week with much attention 
being given to the presence of uh, North Korea, who has united with the South Korea delegation to compete together in the Olympics, and just all kinds of stories keep coming back to that. North Korea is a country that's at the top uh, of the list of Christian persecutors. I want to close with this video testimony about a Korean woman named Hei Wu, because I think her testimony encapsulates a lot of what we've seen in this text and the very testimony of the Thessalonian believers. ago that I had the privilege of spending some time with a, a remarkable lady called Hei Wu. She's North Korean, 70 years old, and hands down, one of the most energetic people I've ever met. But Hei Wu's life has been full of trauma. In 1997, in the midst of a great famine in North Korea, Haewoo's daughter, in her mid-twenties, starved to death in her own home. Haewoo's husband escaped to China. He found God. But sadly, he was caught by the secret police. And six months later, he died in a North Korean prison camp. Haywoo said to me, I was shocked to hear that my husband had become a Christian. But instinctively, I knew that he had found the truth. It wasn't too long after this that Haywoo herself escaped to China and, like her husband, through a series of events, became a Christian. Haywoo was caught by the secret police. She was repatriated to North Korea and placed into a prison camp. As I spent time talking with Haywoo about life in these prisons, death so rampant that bodies would lay on the ground for three or four days without being cleaned up. Stories of mental and physical abuse that would make you sick to the pit of your stomach. I couldn't help but wonder, what is it about people like Hei Wu that, that makes them risk everything for the privilege of being in a relationship with Jesus? You see, in the middle of one of the darkest places on earth, Hei Wu chooses to do something so radical, so dangerous, and so Christ-like. She said to me that, in the middle of this prison, God gave her a heart to evangelize, to tell my fellow prisoners about Jesus. And so right here in the middle of a North Korean labor camp, a secret fellowship, a secret church begins.
lots of people were telling the Thessalonian story. They were telling the Thessalonian story throughout that whole area. What is it about people like Heiwu that makes them risk everything for the privilege of being in a relationship with Jesus, like the Thessalonians had done? In the middle of one of the darkest places on earth, Heiwu chooses to do something so radical, so dangerous, and so Christ-like. Who's telling our story, Northfield Baptist Church? Do we have one to tell? Do you have a story to tell of God's grace in your life? That's how to face the darkness. Would you pray with me? Father, we await the coming of your son, Jesus Christ, who died, who rose again, and who is going to come and who is going to judge this earth. Thank you by your grace. We have been rescued from the wrath to come through our Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, for any here this morning who can't say that, who have not put their trust in Christ and don't have this salvation story to tell, oh God, please, open by your gracious spirit, open, open their eyes, their ears, their hearts to receive Christ. Lord, may we, your church, have a story that reverberates through this community, to this state, to this nation, not for the praise of our glory, it's to the praise of the glory of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. May we examine our lives, Father, because we are the church. It's not somebody else. We are. That we might be church converted in every way by your grace. Before we close in prayer, and we're going to sing to close our time, and if you will, speak of our commitment, response to this message. Let me ask you, have you trusted Christ as Savior? If not, let today be the day. I plead with you. Confess your sin to the Lord and ask Jesus Christ to be your Savior. He has paid the price. He's paid the price. Receive it. Ask him to come into your life. And he will. Believers, are we... Is our activity in our life as a church like that of the Thessalonians. An activity that doesn't bring glory to us but says, tell me about your Savior and what needs to be put in order in your life for that to be true. You talk to the Lord even now and as we sing, we'd be happy to talk personally with you. We have some Individuals who will be in the front, they would be happy to go aside and pray with you, encourage you. Let's close this time by reaffirming our commitment to the cause of Christ, confessing whatever gets in the way that we might be faithful to him.
work to your glory, we pray in Christ's name, amen.